cultural context influences how people think a very very small example if you speak to drivers in singapore they're always talking about i need to earn more i need to make more money because this is an expensive city and people need to make money if you go to indonesia drivers are way more grateful they're always attributing everything to luck they're always thanking god for everything so they'll say whatever i'm getting i'm thankful for it because god has been very good to me so there's a lot of difference in what people attribute their success to Welcome to A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy with me, Daniel Ross. Now, if you haven't heard of Grab, then you should Google the company right away. Grab is the super app which provides users with transportation, food delivery and digital payments across Southeast Asia. Think the Uber of that region, approximately. It is Southeast Asia's first Decacorn, now worth an estimated $26 billion and is the biggest technology startup in the region, if one can still label it so. Priti Kotamati, who joins me today, set up and leads the Grab Behavioral Science team based in Singapore. And so today we're talking about Grab's motivation for getting into behavioral science in the first place, how Priti then set up a BS practice from scratch, how she built credibility and convinced colleagues to take BS seriously and her team's early experiments in the field. Now, this is the sixth episode in my series of very practical podcasts on the life of behavioral scientists, their challenges, their work and how they think about the future of the industry. And I'm proud to say I'm doing this all in harness with my partner, BE Works, one of the very best behavioral science consultancies in the world, co-founded by Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar. BE Works, if you don't know already, is a multidisciplinary team of behavioural scientists and psychologists working on complex challenges across financial services to healthcare to sustainability, helping businesses reimagine a future in which individuals flourish and prosper. So if you're interested in what they're up to in learning more, you might check out their Be Curious blog on their website at beworks.com or feel free at any time to drop Warder Malik, their CEO, and her team, a line at info at beworks.com. They will be delighted to hear from you. Now, without further ado, let's get right into it. Preeti, welcome to A Load of BS with the Practitioners. It's great to have you here today and learn about your behavioral science journey. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Great, great pleasure. Now, I'm going to oversimplify a little here. You built a career in strategy and marketing for consumer products, dare I say, solving business problems in conventional ways. You founded a startup, effectively an Uber for tractors in rural India. That thesis didn't work out, which got you thinking that the most logically laid plans don't always succeed, as the farmers didn't behave as you'd envisaged, and human beings indeed can be frustrating like that. But this stumbling block tipped you towards behavioral science from where you did a master's degree at the LSE in the subject and then landed at Grab in Singapore four years ago, setting up their behavioral science unit. So let's focus on Grab. What was their motivation to think about behavioral science and how did you set up a practice from scratch and, and what were the objectives? 
So the irony is when Grab hired me, I was their first behavioral scientist and the person who hired me actually quit a month before I joined. So when I joined, nobody knew what I was supposed to do, which is good and bad. It's good because nobody knows what I'm supposed to do. It's bad because nobody knows what I'm supposed to do. So I sort of started from like a complete blank canvas. And once I joined, I sort of realized that I need to figure out where this fits in in a product organization. Because there's already a set process. There are designers, there are product teams, there are product managers, there are data scientists, there are user researchers. And somewhere in there, behavioral science needs to fit in. So I sort of used my background of already having worked in a strategy and marketing role and having coordinated with different teams. So I used that background to start reaching out to product teams to understand where these low-hanging fruit are, small problems that can be fixed using behavioral science that convinces people that there is a need for this subject. And through a course of almost a year or so, I did N number of 101 talks explaining what behavioral science is to people and then slowly carving a place for the subject within the product organization. How did you manage to build credibility then from this standing start and then sustain it? Was it a question of a, a succession of small experiments or how, how did you think about that? So multiple things. One is, of course, finding low-hanging fruit, simple problems that needed to be solved that could be solved with a quick fix solution instead of something that needed a huge tech investment. So that was one thing that uh, convinced a lot of people that this is something easy to integrate but gives us good results. The second thing was till now there hadn't been like a very fundamental study about human nature in the organization. So when we started doing that, especially to answer questions that um, the organization had been trying to solve for a while, and it gave them a new perspective, like looking at it from a human behavior and it gave them a completely new perspective to a problem. That really got people excited and that got product teams more and more interested in using behavioral insights and how they were solving problems. Can you give maybe some examples of what the low-hanging fruit was? What were some of the early forays you made into the area? What questions so, were you addressing? So one of the earliest questions that we tried to address as soon as I joined was, around surge pricing. So if you've used Uber, you obviously know about surge pricing. It's when prices are increased to bring in more drivers into the area for a cab company. So when I joined, Grab was the only company that was operating in the region. And there was a lot of talk about how prices were being inflated or prices were being put high and customers were quite angry about that. So we asked a very basic question. We said, why do people hate surge pricing? When we dug in deeper into that, we spoke to a lot of customers, we looked at a lot of literature reviews, and we looked at our own data, and we realized that it wasn't as straightforward as it seemed. For us, it was a very economically rational solution. There aren't enough drivers there, increase the prices, more drivers will come. But the solution wasn't that apparent to customers. To the customers, it seemed more like a black box. I took a ride from home to office in the morning for $15, and now that's costing me $25, and I don't know why. So... When we dug deeper, we were actually able to create a whole framework around how people think about pricing, why this black box becomes a big problem. People expect transparency in pricing and how the whole attribution theory leads them to blame grabs for everything. So when we did that, it actually gave us like a list of solutions. It wasn't just one, but like an entire product roadmap around what all we could do. So for instance, something very small, whenever we showed the price, there used to be a standard statement there saying higher price due to high demand. But then we realized that that wasn't explaining much to customers. So we put together an entire engine that takes into account the various situations and gives out an exact explanation of why the price is the way it is. So for instance, there aren't too many drivers here. Or if it is the middle of the night, we say Batman drivers are coming, which, which is to say that there aren't too many drivers, but those who are there are actually superheroes. Or if it is raining, we say it's raining, everybody's taking a cab. 
So basically give more color to why the price is the way it is and help people understand that. And when we did that, we realized that that not only improved our NPS, but it also helped customers explain prices better to themselves. And that even improved our book through rates. So that was one of the earliest experiments that we had done. That's a great example. I imagine, of course, one of the great challenges at Grab or Uber or Lyft is thinking about this question of driver supply and rider demand. And of course, by the way, when each city has different demographics, transport systems and wealth, and I suppose it's very tough to have uniform standards. I wonder whether there are any equations or rules of thumb which you use at Grab to set out, you know, when and where people want to ride and how much they value their time and money. Of course, price comes into that, as does waiting time, and then weighing those things up against, I guess, alternative modes of transport. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you're speaking about it at a city level, but even within a city, there are geohashes, and every geohash is different. So it could almost mean that I'm standing across the road, I have a price of $15 for the same ride just across the road, you might be having a price of $10, because the way the geography has been cut, in that area, the economics work out at $10. So there's a lot that goes into this, and like at a city level, at a country level, there are other cultural aspects that come in as well. Like Indonesia is a country, the way it operates as compared to Singapore. The pricing is different, the rules are different, the social norms are different. So all of these go into account when we are looking at designing a system, a marketplace like this. And I wonder now you're four years into the journey, which I think by behavioral science unit standards and corporations feels relatively mature. Are there any other examples of the sorts of work you've been doing perhaps in the last year or so, more recent examples and the sort of progress you're making to kind of bring to life even more what's going on in your team? Yeah, I mean, we take up different kinds of studies. One of my favorite studies was around fairness. So this was something that we had taken up when uh, a lot of drivers would openly protest or openly speak about whether they're getting a fair deal from delivery companies. And there used to be a lot of protests, especially in Indonesia, around this. So this was also one of those fundamental questions we asked. So we said, is Grab fair to drivers? When I started the study, in my head, it was all about earnings and incentives. It was all about how much money are drivers making and do they think that's fair. But when we actually did the whole study, we spoke to a lot of drivers. We devised a whole game-based study to get drivers to speak openly about what they think about fairness. And we realized that earnings and incentives were an important part of the equation, but it was a part of the equation. There was a lot more that goes into it. There's the dignity of doing a delivery. There's the whole uh, passenger versus driver equality. They seem to think that Grab is a company run by people who take Grab, but they're not run by people who actually deliver, right? So it always feels like they're more partial towards the passengers or eaters. Then there is the whole concept of mutual respect. And there were like really small things that came up. Like, for example, somebody said, uh, this lady was in a rush. She had to get to the airport to get a flight. And I rushed to get her there in time. But she didn't even turn around and say thank you. And he felt that was unfair. That's nothing to do with earnings and incentives. Some of the residential buildings don't allow a driver to go up and deliver food if he's wearing a delivery jacket. So he said, if the customer already knows he's ordered food, why don't they just come down and collect it? And that required a very small change from our side. Like in the message that goes out to the customer, we just added a line that said, if your building doesn't allow drivers to come up, now is a good time to go and get your food. It was small things like this that actually make drivers feel like they're being respected. And we realized that fairness had so many other aspects to it. And it was actually a very, very important part. So that even became something that we started measuring ourselves against. 
And this is where the experiments start to become really interesting when you get into the weeds and the details beyond the rational discussion between about sort of rider and driver, really understanding what are the, the emotional states and contexts of each side. I wonder, you touched on this briefly before, but how do you guys use and then translate all the academic literature into applied, scalable solutions at Grab? I mean, do you lean on the literature or do you tend to bypass it and come up with your own hypotheses and experiments? So we do lean on literature a lot. The only difference is, I mean, there's been all these debates going on about replicability of all the literature. So we don't take the literature as it is. So we don't, so if the literature says customers are loss averse, we don't just take it as, okay, all customers are loss averse. The way I encourage the team to think about it is to more think about it in framework. So not just say that loss aversion is the only thing that is probably affecting customers, but here are 10 different things that would probably be affecting customers at this point. And if we solve for all of them, or at least most of them, then we are actually solving for a more broader picture. So generally what we end up doing is we do extensive literature reviews. We do look at different studies that have been done and we come up with our own framework, which explains the behavior in our context using some of this literature that's there. Then we use our own data to try and back it up and uh, do experiments if we can in our context so that we're actually able to see whether or not that framework holds true. Got it. That makes sense. That sounds like a very pragmatic approach. Now, I know that you're excited more broadly about promoting behavioral science, helping other companies learn more about psychologically driven, creative problem solving techniques and how this can give them competitive advantage. So let me ask you two questions here. Firstly, what are the questions that you're regularly hearing from organizations who are curious but unsure about behavioral science? And secondly, what are the foundational considerations that should be addressed to get off the ground in terms of how does behavioral science fit into a company who you should be hiring? What are the conditions for success setting goals? So that's a good question. So generally, there's like a list of standard doubts that most companies would ask. The first is, how is this any different from what we're already doing? Because you can imagine behavioral science overlaps with a lot of people. User researchers do similar work. Designers use a lot of behavioral science. Product managers are encouraged now to use a lot of behavioral science. So for them to understand why there is a need for a separate behavioral science unit is important. So that's one thing that always keeps coming up. How is it any different from what we're doing? How does this not overlap with what other functions are doing? Second thing that comes up a lot is around experimentation. Companies seem to think experimentation is expensive and Given that behavioral science relies so much on experimentation, they do have questions around, is it worth investing in? Is this something that we should be doing? Especially in regulated uh, sectors like finance, it's very difficult to get companies to think about experimentation in a big way. The third thing is, why do we need a separate unit? Can we just do a workshop and train everybody to do this? Which is actually not the right solution because you know how workshops go. They work great for the first one week and then after that people forget what's what they've been taught, right? So that's another thing that companies often ask, saying we can just do this as a workshop while we need a whole team for this. So, I mean, these are broadly the things that companies are concerned about and they're often asking, uh, where does this add value? How does this fit in? From my perspective, I feel in a product organization, there is a very, very clear role and a space for behavioral science. Uh, user research does a very critical role, which is they go and speak to customers and they understand what customers are thinking about a particular product or a particular problem. The analyst, the data part helps you validate some of that. But if you need to really triangulate everything, you need the why behind it, which is where the theory parts come in. 
so it's almost like the way to think about it is insights come from three different places there's user research which tells you what weight and what customers are thinking there's data that tells you what's actually happening and then there's behavioral science that tells you the why behind why what is actually happening so when you put all of these three together you get a very good picture about why customers are actually thinking what they're thinking or what they're doing <clears throat> So that for me is like a very uh, critical role that behavioral science plays, and that's not something that you would expect any of these existing teams to do. This is a specialized field, and this definitely requires specialists to come in and actually do this part. In terms of where the organization should think about placing this, in my head, it's very similar to any of these fields that started. Right, like when data science started, it was one data scientist, and then slowly every team started having one data scientist. Similarly, design, every product team has one designer. I feel like it should be similar to that. Every team should have a behavioral scientist. The other model is the behavioral science team is a central team that works as a consulting team, and then whichever team requires this team to help out, this team just jumps in and does like an internal consulting role. And let me ask you, what skills, interests, and backgrounds make good behavioral scientists? Do people require degrees in the subject or in psychology, perhaps, or is a curious lateral thinking mind a sufficient starting point? If you want to start from where you are right now, a curious mind is exactly what you need. Anybody can start using behavioral science in what they're doing. But if you are looking to get into a behavioral science role in any company, unfortunately, most companies require you to have a master's. In fact, many insist on PhDs. Again, I assume that this is because the field is new and we're still trying to figure out what this subject is and. we need experts to help us do that which is why the insistence on a degree but that still doesn't stop anybody from using it anywhere any product manager could become a behaviorally informed product manager if you just start reading more about this and gets more curious about behavior and as you personally grow preci how have you changed your approach over time what are you doing better now than when you started out 4 years ago when i started behavioral science was very much like a toolbox like you have these Hundred different nudges, and everybody's talking about, oh, this is the bias, and this is how we use it. It still is, to a large extent, most of the popular culture is around behavioral science is still approaching it as a toolbox. But I personally have moved away from that because I feel like if my role just becomes looking at a product and saying, this is how you need to nudge people, then I think that's really restricting ourselves. There's a lot more that can be unpacked if you go deeper into the fundamentals of human behavior rather than just think about it as these are hundred nudges and I need to apply them somewhere. So for me, that growth has been something that I've enjoyed a lot. Where I stop thinking about how do I put in force fit one nudge here, but rather think about behavior from a more fundamental perspective, build frameworks around how people think, and then go around building roadmaps around that. And just building on that, when it comes to the next frontier in behavioral science, in terms of what excites you, where are the opportunities? Where are thought leaders like yourself nudging towards? If we go by the toolbox approach, then I would think companies just need a workshop. They just need a workshop and a handout that gives everybody a list of biases and everybody just goes about doing what they're doing. But as more and more companies realize that the toolbox approach doesn't work and go more into this foundational approach. I think the direction would be companies setting up behavioral science units, not big units, but maybe three or four people who are focused entirely on understanding human behavior and helping other teams understand that. And then they don't think about it as I need to put this unit so that I can nudge customers towards a particular behavior or towards a particular business goal, but more from a nuanced way of understanding behavior so that they can build better products and services. Got it. And as a final one, Preeti. 
Is there any question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Uh, that's a good one. I would think maybe something around the differences between Western and uh, Asian countries when it comes to the whole cultural context around behavioral sciences applied. Because there's a lot of debate around how a lot of these studies are weird studies or Western studies. So maybe it would have been interesting to see how this is different in an Asian context. Do you want to share just a few headline thoughts just to spike people's interest on that? I mean, of course, context, environment is absolutely everything in behavioral science. That's so a very good point you raise. But what are your observations from where you sit? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of differences. Like even within Southeast Asia, we operate in eight countries and there are massive differences between how each of these countries' cultural context influences how people think. A very, very small example if you speak to drivers in Singapore, they're always talking about, I need to earn more, I need to make more money because this is an expensive city and people need to make money. If you go to Indonesia, drivers are way more grateful. They're always attributing everything to luck and they're always thanking God for everything. So they'll say, whatever I'm getting, I'm thankful for it because God has been very good to me. So there's a lot of difference in what people attribute their success to. In Singapore, it's more about, I work really hard and I deserve more. Whereas in Indonesia, it was more about, hey, God has been good to us, I've been lucky and, you know, attributing it to a completely different source. That's thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating. All these cultural nuances, I suppose, maybe in Indonesia, then you can blame surge pricing on a higher divine being. And just for those who want to find out more about the work that you're doing, where can we find you, Preeti? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm quite active there. Other than that, my LinkedIn profile also has my website where I keep posting a lot of articles. Fantastic. And with that, Preeti, let me thank you hugely for being a great sport and sharing so much of your experience with me and our listeners. I think getting the inside track on how the behavioral science team, what I think is the largest tech startup, or it's hardly a startup anymore, but nevertheless, within Southeast Asia works is a real and rare treat. And it's been hugely insightful. So thank you so much once more. Thank you so much. My pleasure being here. Now, I hope you'll agree there's no messing around on a load of BS. We are getting insights into how BS is applied at some of the most significant companies in the world, from tech-driven apps like Grab to beer moths like Coca-Cola and leading drugs companies like Novartis and Fosun. Now, next week on the show, I welcome Michelle Hilscher, who leads BE Works' financial services portfolio. We'll be talking about tactics her team uses to overcome our unconscious biases when it comes to making decisions about money. There is lots to say here, as you might imagine, and we're all guilty of making terrible decisions, at least now and again. And lastly, if you enjoy these podcasts, please do leave me a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support is what makes us tick. Thank you, and see you next time.